Well, hello, everybody. It's the day after Labor Day, Tuesday, September 8, 2020, and this is episode number 122. I'm your host and the creator of the podcast Weather Jazz, Andre Bruner here. I'm a meteorologist on staff with WJW Television in Cleveland, Ohio. Now, today's podcast is something that I promised I would give to you on episode number 121. Now, if you've not listened to episode 121, I urge you to go back and listen to that one first. I want to introduce you to a brand new person, brand new meteorologist on staff with WBZ TV Channel 4 in Boston. His name is Jacob Wyckoff. I've known Jacob for quite some time and watched his career over the last decade or so. And it's just a whole lot of fun to watch him land such a high prestige position with such a a wonderful station like WBZ, who has a long history in the Boston area. If you're ever in Boston, I encourage you to tune in to Jacob on weekends and at other time slots during the week as well. And look at episode number 121 on weatherjazz.com because Jacob has a very distinctive look and we talk a little bit about that had some fun with it go check out the photo uh, episode 121 uh, on weatherjazz.com okay enough about that because that's going to set up the stages I told you that in episode 121 perhaps it was time to revisit the interview that I originally did with Don Kent Don Kent is one of the meteorologists that started with WBZ at a very, very early stage in television. And I'm going to let him explain everything to you. Now, Don has since passed away. uh, So this is uh, going to be a, a wonderful time for those of us that remember Don Kent to listen to his voice again, listen to that reassuring voice that he always had when he presented the morning forecast on Channel 4, and to enjoy what he went through in developing television meteorology. He was really one of the pioneers. Now, I did this interview way back in 2009 when Weather Jazz had really just gotten some legs. This was one of the very early episodes of Weather Jazz, and it was originally broadcast on March 25th, 2009. So, without any further delay, here's the first part of two parts. We're going to break this up into two, just like we did in 2009. And so, here is the first part, and we'll release the second part sometime next week. We'll have more on that later. Okay, let's get to that interview with the legendary Don Kent. Well, Don, it's wonderful having you on Weather Jazz uh, today. You are by far one of the most recognizable names in New England weather. We had Bruce Schwegler on a little bit ago, but it's great to have you on the program. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I certainly know Bruce. Uh, We've worked together for a long while. Well, Don, uh, if you would for a moment, uh, you you, you have been noted. According to uh, the Eric Spindler interview that is uh, posted online, and we're going to supply that link on our website, weatherjazz.com. But you are dubbed the first 
television weatherman in Boston. And you have seen a lot of things, and your uh, career goes way back. Uh, and it really begins, uh, I guess, when you got in trouble in the 1920s looking out the window. Right, that was 1925, looking out the window. One teacher said, what are you doing out there? And I said, I'm looking at the, at the wind blowing the smoke around and the clouds and all that sort of thing. And she said, why do you do that? I said, well, I want to be a weatherman. She said, well, we'll make you the first weatherman in the third grade, 1925. <laughs> I love it. And uh, how was your record back then? It was on the, on the spot forecasting, anyone interested in weather can do better than the official forecast. So <laughs> I started getting a pretty good reputation way back then. Well, when you uh, began your uh, real career in meteorology, it was actually uh, in one of the uh, divisions of the armed services, correct? Yeah, that was a wonderful break I got there. That, uh, that I ended up with a direct commission <laughs> as an officer without, without any of the uh, training to go with it. But uh, they needed what I was doing for with the air base at Salem, Coast Guard Salem. We had a bunch of big uh, PBMs there on sub patrol and with uh, had a convoys, and I was forecasting for them. They and I that's everything has been luck. Everything that I've done has been good luck. I've been at the right place at the right time when the need was there, and uh, that's it's odd how I even got to Salem to the air station. But anyhow, I got there because they were looking for an, a Navy forecaster, uh, because after all, Coast Guard comes on the Navy during the war, and uh, they they never got one. So they had, they had the A&C teletubs up there under a canvas. They weren't even using them. They were calling Boston all the time to get clearances. And so uh, I was I took training to go in the weather ship, and I was going to go on the upper air deal at the, up at the Greenland, and I was all set to go in there. I got to Boston on time, and the ship left four hours earlier because of an impending storm. I called the Coast Guard office in Boston and said, what do I do now? They said, well, take leave. The next boat will be in in about 10 days. I said, I want to work. I said, what about up Salem? He said, what can you do? I said, I can forecast. You can? Yeah, <laughs> <I said, "Yes, laughs> uh, chance. And so up I went, and that's where I stayed for two years and, and worked right up right through chief and actually got a direct commission before the war ended and was, then went out to the West Coast to try to do something like that at Seattle. and uh, Not Seattle, but Port Angeles near Seattle and uh, on the West Coast. So it was quite a career. Well, Don, when you think back at the, the chance that you could have gone to Greenland, do you, in hindsight, uh, after having uh, revealed your uh, forecasting ability and gone to Salem, do you regret not uh, going to Greenland? No, in fact, I can tell you there's a story about that. I shouldn't say this because it was against Coast Guard regulations, but when they did, my commission came through, they said, Greenland, uh, I would know, they said, uh, you've got to go to Coast Guard Academy for 90 days. I said, well, the war's almost over. It wasn't over then. It was still going on with Japan, but uh, uh, it was looking pretty good. And I said, if I can do something good for you, let me go as a, as a, a chief petty officer. He said, well, you can't can't go around the country as a petty officer at a headquarters. You've got to be an officer. They don't pay attention to petty officers when you go into a new naval <laughs> district. So I said, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go to academy for 90 days if the war's not going to last forever. I said, send me to Greenland if you want. Send me anywhere. 
but I'll stay as a chief and let it go with that. So you won't believe it, but I called the headquarters in Washington at the my commanding officer at Salem and said, could you give him a call? I did, and uh, lo and behold, uh, they said uh, they said. They sent messages back that, that they couldn't do a thing about it. But three days later, after thinking about it, they decided they'd give me the deal, so they made me permanent at Salem in temporary duty in Washington, where I went down and wrote the exams for Coast Guard weather uh, for the enlisted people. And then they sent me out west, uh, still with no uh, Greenland <laughs> and no, and also no academy. So I did it pretty. I never never heard of something like that before. But anyhow, that's the way happen. And that, incidentally, I might say one thing, uh, with all my background and all the experience I had, and there's a lot more to it than I've told you so far, uh, you'd think that, uh, uh, you know, I... uh, I, I don't know what to say about it. It, it was just, just crazy the way that everything looked, worked. Because the reason that I got the direct commission, uh, because the audits came from Navy to send the Coast Guard plane out, mm. and I saw this was a December job, and I told them no, I wouldn't recommend that. So the, my commanding officer said that and told the headquarters at the Navy. So they sent uh, a, a unit out, and unfortunately they lost it. And that's why this all happened. I guess when the investigations happened, they checked the forecasts, and that's how this all happened. Just everything happened it's just as if I planned it that way, but believe me, I didn't. <laughs> Don, it sounds like an awful lot of divine providence was uh, sitting on your shoulder. Yes, uh, believe me, I do believe in that after what happened, because of everything. You, The education I got was actually, I, I was among the very first people in the United States to uh, begin to learn about the new way of forecasting with warm fronts, cold fronts, and air masses and so forth, because uh, 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 one of the, uh, I can't remember all the names of people, but some from Norway came over to MIT mm-hmm. and set up a course on that. That was back in 1936, 7, and 8, when they introduced air mass forecasting uh, in, in the training at MIT. It didn't become the new system of forecasting, which, of course, we're now using until about the beginning of World War I. But the training occurred then, and I went to the Weather Bureau every day when I was doing a weather broadcast on radio back in 35, 36, 37, and 38 for free every day. (laughs) I went to the Weather Bureau and got the weather map uh, that was being printed, and then the weather maps were the only way they got weather out way back in the early 30s and mid-30s, before there were many radio stations or many people even talking about weather on radio. So that's how that happened. And uh, lo and behold, one of the graduates of the new course at MIT uh, offered to give a special course to the eight people at the Weather Bureau, and they needed two other people. So I was one of the two other people who went with it. And you won't believe it was uh, about two months, two nights a week, uh, three three hours a night. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fee was uh, the the instructor, a young fellow, and this was a depression just as bad as what we have going now. Twenty dollars for the night, and that's what that was like hundred fifty dollars a night at, at today's cost. Sure. And so uh, by having ten people, it was two dollars a night. Can you imagine an education in an MIT room for three hours, two nights a week for two months? <laughs> for two dollars <laughs> for the price. Way back, and then being among the very first in the country to even know about it. That's amazing. Uh, that's the 
divine providence. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And then, of course, when I did finally get the commission, uh, then that gave me the status of professional. Mm-hmm. Remember, no college here. This mm-hmm. is just hard work. It gave me as a professional. So when the requirement for uh, seal of approval, professional weatherman, I had the professional experience as an officer in the Coast Guard. <laughs> I've said enough. This sounds like I'm bragging. It could make a good storybook, but I don't ever want this put. I don't want to ever be the one to put this in writing because it's, it's, it sounds like bragging, but it's just plain luck. That's oh, all. Sure, and and you know, as you mentioned, a, a divine guiding hand that was a that was definitely putting you in the right place right, at the right time. Right time. Yeah, now, that's right. You, you mentioned you were doing radio in the 1930s uh, for free, and I can relate. Uh, being uh, a young man in New Bedford, uh, I was doing the same thing for a while. For, oh, no kidding! For my local radio station. I, in, in, I knew you were down New Bedford way when you wrote me your letter a couple of years ago. Right. Uh, it was interesting. Quite a few people had that kind of experience at that. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to see. Uh, incidentally, the only guiding light I had was E.B. Rideout, and his, he should get some recognition. He was the first weatherman, in, I'm sure, in the United States to be on radio. You know, radio didn't start until 19, uh, 1920 with KDKA, mm-hmm. and that was Westinghouse. And uh, Westinghouse had a plant in West Springfield, Massachusetts, and they opened a radio station there, and that was WBZ, West Springfield. Ah. That's why when you were growing up as a kid, you'd hear WBZ, Boston, and Springfield. Ah, yes. That's how that all happened. (laughs) And lo and behold, that's where I ended up on WBZ. That is phenomenal. Now, you started that. <laughs> See what I mean by my <laughs> unbelievable coincidence? It really is. And uh, that there's no other explanation. But you, but you had a lot of hard work in the process, too. You had a certain element, uh, and, and you had to step up to the plate. And you did that in the 1930s when you didn't get a, uh, get paid a single penny for no, no, what you no, were no. doing. And I did that for three years, and in fact, it went over so good on WMEX in Boston, which was a little bit of a station. The new station opened up in Lawrence, WLAW, and they took it so uh, for a while I was on two stations <laughs> <laughs> for no money. <laughs> But incidentally, I was on during the 1938 hurricane, Mm -hmm. and a a young man uh, my age, well, two years younger, uh, was uh, there, too, and he was a mother nut, as I call myself. And uh, the two of us were all excited about a potential hurricane that day when we were at the Weather Bureau office at 11 o'clock in the morning, and only one other person there was interested out of all the people in the Weather Bureau that were concerned was the assistant manager of the Weather Bureau at that time in Boston. And uh, he he ended up working for the Hartford Current newspaper, and about two years ago he wrote a story about the hurricane. Uh, He was... He does a monthly, uh, weekly report in the paper. He wrote a story about the hurricane, and uh, it, it, it tells the whole story of how uh, he he and another kid called Ken, <laughs> and the assistant <laughs> were the only two people that forecast the hurricane. <laughs> and then it said uh, that he was doing it up for nothing on a radio station. <laughs> Mm. So anyhow, enough of that. Now, what were you doing um, in in order to earn your keep? Or what were you doing for I, a living? Well, my own uh, keep. I started that. That that is another story that uh, you can't believe too. To 
to earn my cape, I had to get a job in Boston because I wanted to be where I could be 10 minutes from the post office building where the weather bureau was located. And I said, office boys in those days got $12, $12, this and that, a week. Mm-hmm. 12 a week. So in order to get the two hours off at lunch hour instead of one hour, I negotiated the deal. I worked for $10. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but I was going to BU two nights a week in business. Uh, I didn't get any degree there because I got going in weather later. uh, And uh, so I had student pass on the railroad and cost about 10 cents to come to Boston every day. So it was, you know, everything was cheap. So even $10 a week is 30 or 40 now, which sure. is still mm-hmm. not much, but anyhow, that's the picture. So that, that's, that's the way it, it all worked out there. And uh, then I, in, in the job I had was an office boy in a rug and carpet floor covering business in Boston, a distributor. I worked for the distributor. I was the office manager, so to speak, that did the dirty work. I was writing letters and stuff. And then when the uh, when after the 1938 hurricane, I still had no spots, and I had to get, get making more money. So I accepted a job with the copper company as a salesman, and they sent me to, to New York to learn the business for two day, two year, two weeks at the factory. Mm-hmm. Came back and then was made the salesman for the Boston area, which was a pretty good job. Then it was up to about thirty dollars a week. So I was that's how my keep was began to pay off and then but i gave up the weather for the two or three years then the uh, the company started making carpets uh carpets making blankets for the military and tanning and all that stuff so there were no more rugs so then i worked in the shipyard for a while i talked to the navy and thought they said if i was older they would have given me a commission but they would i was still a kid only 21 22 and I didn't have enough behind me for that. So I, I waited, and then the Coast Guard was looking for I, I, I'm a small boat fan, a sailboat and power, and no Boston Harbor and sail, sailboat races out there, and even ice boats, uh, we travel and were on the top of our car. So I knew something about that sort of thing. So they were looking for the, so a few men that knew Boston Harbor they, because they were working on a sub, any sub, subnet at the mouth of the harbor. They needed a few people there that were ready, all trained boat people that knew what to do. And uh, so I went in to sign up for that. And and uh, anyhow, and they gave me a coxswain rating. That's a third class rating. Mm-hmm. That was $78 a, a, a month instead of, uh, what, 35 or 30 or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. To make a long story short, uh, that we went to the receiving station in Boston his divine province again. The next day is, was a day we were going to be assigned to boot camp. I was going to go to boot camp and run boating all over again. Oh, boy. Somewhere. Okay. So uh, the, the officer of the day who was running the meeting said, before we uh, start the assignments, uh, we have a special notice from the Navy. They would like to have us train 10 people for airway observing. So in addition to their Coast Guard duties, when they're on a surf station, they could report weather to the Navy for their coastal training mm-hmm. and exercises and so forth. And so they needed 10 people, so they asked for volunteers. So my hand, of course, was the first one up, but that was the only one up. <laughs> so they drafted nine other guys, and because I was a coxswain, that made me a one-stripe one officer. You know, that's the lowest kind of a sure. thing. 
That's amazing stories. Is yeah. everything just was in the right place at the right time? But I knew enough to take advantage of it. That's all. That's phenomenal. So that's that's a crazy story. Well, so I never had any basic training in Coast Guard at all, ever. The, and I and come up and I come out an officer. Well, Don, we're going to take you now from. Uh, your early days when you were doing radio for free and then into the Coast Guard getting some uh, training and some meteorology experience. And now the war is over and uh, you're out of the armed forces. What happens at that point? How did you start your career in meteorology from that point? Okay, all right. So I told you I worked for the carpet company and they made me a salesman. Yes. I came back and I I got discharged at Christmas after the war was over, and I, on New Year's Day, after New Year's Day, I, I signed up again with the copper company, and the, my boss in the copper company said, you know, he said, Don, this is a good business, but he said, the new trend in, in business is to have roadside stores. So why don't you and your brother get, you, you, he knows that he's a copper layer. I, I got a damn job as a copper layer. He said, why don't you... Uh, looking for, for some property and I he made suggestions and so uh, I, I said well, I know a place that would be a good place right on Wallison Beach right on the Atlantic coast on a very busy beach road that the road is one of the main roads into Boston before they put the super highways in mm-hmm. and so there was an old building there and we got some money together and $10,000 bought this old building which might have cost 100000 in those days way back but it was a good size one but it was in bad shape so we spent uh, I spent my spare time after selling rugs to stores and stuff and he, my brother was a worker as a carpet layer during the day and so we got together nights and weekends and we got this place open we opened in, in August uh, 19 uh, 1947. I, I came back, of course, back in back in '55 there, and, and uh, wanted to go on radio. And went to all the radio stations. They said, "We don't need you. We can get it for free." He'd be right out in the old salt, Ralph Barker, with the two guys on radio. And so I, 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 I had the other job, so I went to it. All right. So we opened up the store. And the, the salesman for the radio station just opened in Quincy. Uh, they opened in September of, of this, it was 47. We opened in August of 47. And we didn't need any, ad- my brother told him he, he was going to run the store. And I was still going to be the salesman outside working for the company, the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the uh, what, what happened is that my brother told the guy, he said, well, he said, we, we don't need any advertising because we rugs are scarce now anyhow, and Dawn's able to get enough of them so we can sell everything we get. Anyhow, I, my, my brother said, well, of course, Don could be a, a weatherman. He could talk about the weather. And that was nothing, nothing 
was set. Well, about a week later, there was a little hurricane down in North Carolina somewhere threatening to come to New England. And this guy came running up to the store and said, where's your brother? He said, hey, we, he, we bring, bring him down and we'll talk about the storm. And so I got down the next day and talked about it. And they signed me up right then and there. And that was 19, that was September 1947. Mm. And my broadcasting career started then for money. 47, and it ended in, in, in uh, it ended uh, WBZ television in 83, and radio 1985 BZ, but then I went from BZ over to HDH for a couple of years, three or four years, mm-hmm. and then I had a bunch of little stations all over New England here, about eight of them, for up until the last one was ended in 2000, in uh, Don, I can uh, tell you that my brother, uh, who still lives in New Bedford, used to listen to uh, that radio station in Cape Cod just to hear your forecast. And uh, when in 2004 you suddenly disappeared, he was distraught. (laughs) Well, you know that the highlight of my career, probably not for money but for thrill, was to be asked to be the guest speaker at a fundraiser for Mount Washington at the big state building on top of Mount Washington. They had a big dinner with 150 people, and which they had to raise an awful lot of money. And I was their speaker for that, and that was 2004. And that was about two weeks before my career ended on, on QRC, and I did my 6 o'clock Sunday night broadcast. Yeah, it was Sunday night. 6 o'clock Sunday night broadcast right from the Mount Washington weather station. Oh, how fun. Yeah. Uh, Right where <laughs> weather is made. Oh yeah, that was that was the last time that I did any. We got uh, well two weeks later is when they ended up. But no one even got excited about it down in the Cape. You think the Cape would have been excited about it? Speaking, <laughs> speaking from the top of the mountain, but I never got a card or anything from anybody. Well, I know for a fact that there are an awful lot of people, not only my brother, but an awful lot of people in southern New England that said, Where's Don? when uh, suddenly your voice wasn't on uh, QRC. Boy, does that ever bring back very, very special memories. Hearing that voice again, a voice that uh, I listened to for a very long time as a youngster growing up in southern New England. And if you are listening to Weather Jazz from southern New England, I'm sure that you get that very same feeling as well. And I encourage you to make sure that you bookmark weatherjazz.com or make sure that you save Weather Jazz as one of your favorite podcasts in whatever podcast app uh, you might be using, because the very next episode, episode number 123, 
We will continue with the conversation that we started with Don Kent in episode number 122. A real interesting throwback indeed. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Help me to spread the word, if you would, about this podcast inside your sphere of influence on your social media page or by word of mouth. Special thanks to all of you who have partnered to support Weather Jazz to further expand future episodes, along with the frequency of the topics covered. And if you would like to partner with Weather Jazz, consider becoming a monthly Weather Jazz supporter. You're going to find the link at the bottom of every episode at weatherjazz.com. And eventually, I'm going to set up that secret email address to give you the supporter a special chance to contact me on a more regular and direct basis for content ideas or anything else you may have on your heart and mind. Well, if you have a question or topic suggestion, I welcome your input. You can easily reach me at weatherjazz at yahoo.com. And now, via text or voicemail at the Weather Jazz Podcast Audience Connect line. That number is 234 525-5888. Once again, 234-525-5888. And if you're listening to Weather Jazz via one of those podcast apps, remember to subscribe so that you can automatically download every episode as I make them available. And if you're in the Cleveland, Ohio area or plan to visit or simply traveling through, You can catch my 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. weekday weather segments on WJW Television, Fox 8, or online live at fox8.com from anywhere in the world. Hey, we'll catch you next go-around. Again, we'll continue with our conversation with Don Kent in episode number 123. I'm going to release that sometime next week, so keep an eye out for it right here on Weather Jazz. Weather and science across the globe. The weather jazz.